Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I am delighted by certain kinds of surprises. I'm delighted particularly by things that seem improbable and yet are true. For example, I have a colleague. Before becoming a pastor, she was a member of Glide Memorial United Methodist Church in San Francisco. Many of you know about Glide or have visited Glide. Our youth group has been there to do service work on a summer mission trip. Glide is a very urban church. It's in the Tenderloin neighborhood of San Francisco. It's very diverse, dedicated to social justice and radical hospitality. My colleague was used to urban life, and then she became a pastor. She was appointed to the Winnemucca United Methodist Church. And she loves it. For those of you who aren't familiar with Winnemucca, Nevada, it's a town of fewer than 8,000 people, and though it's on Highway 80, it feels like it's in the middle of nowhere. And my colleague there is absolutely thriving, and so is the church. Seems improbable, and yet is true. It is this kind of surprise that delights me, and not only delights me, but tells me that the Holy Spirit is indeed at work. If someone can go from San Francisco to Winnemucca and thrive, if someone can go from Glide Church to the Winnemucca United Methodist Church and thrive, then the Holy Spirit is indeed at work. I feel that way about the Song of Solomon being in the Bible. If erotic love poetry can make it into the canon of sacred Jewish and Christian scripture, then surely the Holy Spirit is at work. It seems improbable, and yet it is true. Surely the Holy Spirit had a hand in that. This week, I let the lectionary calendar of assigned scriptures hand me my topic. Our scripture reading for this morning is one of today's lectionary readings. The obvious topic suggested by the Song of Songs is about sexuality and religion. It's a topic that is very current as well as long-standing. You don't have to do much digging through present-day media to find examples of Christians talking about sex, and usually in ways that would make people think that Christianity is harsh and judgmental. The sermon title is not quite right. It would be more to the point to ask, what's sex got to do with it? What does sexuality have to do with faith? Or what does erotic poetry have to do with sacred scripture? This book in our Bible, Song of Solomon, is also called Song of Songs. I use the two titles interchangeably. Have you ever heard someone preach on Song of Solomon? I know I never heard a sermon on Song of Solomon until I preached one myself. <laughs> In our lectionary calendar of scripture readings, there is only one selection from Song of Solomon in the entire three-year cycle. And every Sunday, there are four choices for a scripture you can choose to focus on in the lectionary calendar. 
So it's very easy to skip the reading from the Song of Solomon on that once every three year occasion when it does come up. It's no surprise if you've never heard about Song of Songs from the pulpit. Of course, there are other reasons why you wouldn't hear a preacher use Song of Solomon. It isn't only that it rarely comes up in the lectionary. The main reason many people go their entire church-going lives without hearing a sermon on the Song of Solomon is that it's just too sexy for church. The process that our church office manager Anna and I went through in choosing the cover image for our bulletin is a good illustration of this. By far, the most beautiful, most holy representative image for the Song of Songs is a painting by Chinese artist He Qi. But we didn't choose to use that image this morning because it was a bit too evocative. You can look it up. <laughs> the Song of Solomon is just a bit too sexy for church. Give a preacher some verses that express timeless theological truths, or guidance for faithful living, or a lesson in discipleship, and we're fine. Give us the graphic flirtation of a young couple, and we get a little uncomfortable. When you read Song of Songs for the first time, it can be pretty startling to discover this passionate love poetry and the sensual images right there in the Bible. Here's part of what we heard today. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. The Song of Songs is actually a collection of poems, not just one long poem. Most of the poems alternate voices between two lovers, with the man speaking some verses and the woman speaking others. Here is some more, this time the man addressing the woman. How beautiful you are, my love, how very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil, your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like the halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. To me, the fact that the Song of Songs is included in our Bible is proof that the Holy Spirit was at work when the canon of the Bible was set. All through history, there was controversy about this book of the Bible. There was a gathering of rabbis on the Palestinian coast in the first century after Jesus' birth. Records of that gathering tell us that a number of rabbis raised objections to the Song of Songs being included in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Jewish Bible. It appears that they objected on the grounds that it was too explicitly erotic. The phrase used in the debate was that reading this book would render the hands impure, or in another translation, would defile the hands. But still, the book stayed in the scripture. Here's another section where the woman speaks. My beloved is all radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside springs of water, bathed in milk, fitly set. His cheeks are like beds of spices, yielding fragrance. His lips are lilies, distilling liquid myrrh. His arms are rounded gold, set with jewels. It wasn't just the Jews. 
Christians also have debated whether the Song of Solomon belongs in the Bible. Really what people were asking is, what's sex got to do with it? What does this have to do with our faith and our scripture? Here's another verse. Upon my bed at night, I sought him who my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Founder of Methodism, John Wesley, writes about that bed in his notes on the scripture. Maybe you are like me and find pieces of our history to be not only informative, but also entertaining. In Wesley's notes on Song of Solomon, he picks out the word bed and offers this creative explanation. Bed. This seems to denote the place where the church enjoys sweet fellowship with Christ by his spirit accompanying his ordinances. Okay? (laughs) That's from the late 18th century. The dating of the Song of Songs is not known for sure, but its writing predates the life of Christ by at least two centuries. Song of Songs never says anything about any Messiah, and certainly not about the church. I think John Wesley was stretching it a bit to come up with that. But he is not alone. There have been all kinds of attempts to reinterpret the Song of Songs, to make it something other than what it is. Part of how people have justified the Song of Solomon's existence in our scripture is by explaining the love poetry as all one big allegory for the love between God and humanity. But did you know that God is not ever mentioned in the Song of Songs? Not once. There's only one other book in the Bible where God is not mentioned at all, and if you can tell me what it is after worship, I'll give you a gold star. In historical interpretations looking at Song of Solomon as one large allegory, Jewish readers interpreted it as an allegory for the relationship between God and Israel, while Christian interpreters read it as an allegory for the relationship between Christ and the church. 17th century Protestant commentator Matthew Henry insisted on the spiritualized interpretation and warned against reading the song with what he said, as he said, with carnal minds. I think the great lengths that interpreters have gone to historically to invent some religious reading of the Song of Songs just demonstrates how uncomfortable it was and is for people to imagine that our scriptures in fact do include erotic poetry. On the other hand, Protestant reformer John Calvin said the song was about physical love, and he never saw anything wrong with that. There is pretty much consensus today among mainline biblical scholars that there are no valid indications that the writer intended Song of Solomon to be about anything other than human sexual love. Why does it matter? Why bother asking this question? of whether this book of our Bible truly is erotic poetry as opposed to a complex spiritual allegory. It matters because the Christian church has messed up so badly on so many occasions when speaking of sexuality. Over and over again, we have heard Christian voices speak of sexuality 
with the assumption that sexuality is bad or dangerous. This assumption leads some in Christianity to respond to human sexuality with some combination of rejection and rules, rules to constrain and control this dangerous energy. But in the face of a Christian tradition that has made terrible mistakes in working with sexuality, we find erotic poetry in our Bible. We find romance and passion, courtship and sensuality, and two people praising each other's bodies. And it reminds us, these things are part of what is sacred, too. The truth is that even if Song of Solomon really is nothing but passionate poetry between lovers, with all the sensual images that we find there, it still belongs in our scripture. That's why it made it into the scripture, perhaps against the odds, because this too is sacred. This too matters to God. The idea that sexuality should be embraced as inherently good and sacred and a gift from God is unfortunately a difficult idea for many people to wrap their minds around. It reminds me of a friend of mine who was teaching Sunday school, and one year she ended up with a class of all boys. One day, the message of the Sunday school lesson was that God is with you everywhere you go. So one of the boys responded by saying, Oh yeah? Does God go to the bathroom with you too? And my friend was quick enough on her toes to say, Yes, God is even in the bathroom with you, and you might think that's embarrassing, but it isn't embarrassing to God. We keep thinking there are parts of our lives that God is not interested in, places where God does not participate. But that isn't true. And that way of thinking is very foreign to the way of thinking we find in the Bible. In ancient Israel, there was no separation between religious life and secular life at all. You couldn't think about God on the Sabbath and forget God the rest of the week. So there was no clear separation between religious poetry and secular poetry. The whole culture revolved around an understanding that God was integrated into every part of life. Someone who was a part of that culture and that time when the Song of Solomon was written would have understood that God's presence and our spiritual lives are woven seamlessly together with all of the sensual experience described in the Song of Solomon. It's all part of a seamless whole. Now, if only we can come to believe that too. So maybe the Song of Solomon doesn't leave us with timeless theological truths or guidance for faithful living or a lesson in discipleship. But I hope it leaves us with the assurance that our sensual lives are also a part of God's good creation, the assurance that our erotic lives matter to God and are embraced by God. Amen.